Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again, and glad you're here to learn about John Owen. Um, this is the second class we're going to do on him. We're going to focus on his trip to uh, Ireland with Oliver Cromwell. Um, I didn't mention last week uh, my name or who I am, I think, um, but my name is Zach McCulley. Um, I'm here in New Haven as a, as a visiting student at Yale. I'm getting my PhD in history at a school in Northern Ireland um, in, in Belfast, Queen's University, Belfast. And uh, my research is on John Owen. Um, I'm looking at the, uh, at the end of his life, the last 20 years or so of his life. Um, and so uh, right now we're working through the beginning of his life. And so a lot of this is kind of a refresher to me as well. Um, but um, John o- I came to John Owen originally um, reading, reading books like uh, The Death of Death and The Death of Christ, which we'll talk about some today. Um, uh, but as I began to read some of Owen's uh, theology, and, um, and he has a lot of edifying content in his books, um, I began to see you know, what a remarkable figure he was. Um, just as a man living within very um, difficult times. Um, and so hopefully some of that comes out as we talk about Owen and his theology, but also um, so that we can, we can understand who Owen was uh, in his times. Uh, before we begin, though, we'll, we'll pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for this Lord's Day where uh, we have the opportunity to gather together as a church later this morning. Uh, we thank you for the free gift of the gospel uh, the forgiveness of sins for all who would fall upon Christ, uh, your Son. Father, would you grant us grace now in this hour um, as we consider uh, the life of John Owen? Would you strengthen us in faith and in humility? Amen. Well, last week, uh, you may remember, if, if, you, if you weren't here, we can, we can recap what we talked about. Uh, we talked about some of the early years of Owen's life growing up in a Puritan home. We talked about his studies uh, at Oxford, the spiritual awakening he had of sorts, um, and uh, his first few years as a pastor of two struggling congregations. Uh, We left off right where Oliver Cromwell requested that Owen accompany his new model army uh, on their expedition to Ireland. Um, I made a note, though, before we pick up on, on Ireland, I wanted to follow up on just, just some one or two things that we discussed last week um, regarding that, that spiritual experience that Owen had where he, he gained assurance of salvation. Um, now, so, so someone had asked me afterward about um, that experience of assurance. What exactly does that mean? What did it mean for Owen? Uh, and importantly for us, I, I think, what, it, what does that mean for us as, as Christians? And I, I think to be sure, there's, there's not a more important question that we can ask. Do I, do I belong to God? Um, well, there's probably not a better place to go to on the topic of assurance than to the Puritans. Um, uh, they've you know that was a that was a key feature of a lot of their writing um, was this topic of assurance, um, and so I want to commend to you just a few things if that's something that you're interested in. We'll get into what Owen has to say about assurance later on, 
but if that's something immediate that, that you're interested in looking in, um, you know, one book, um, it's more of a reference book, is, um, is a Puritan theology, Doctrine for Life. There's a short chapter uh, in, this, in this really big volume on William Perkins on the conscience. Um, Perkins lived a, a generation before Owen. Um, he was known as, as the great architect of Puritanism. He wrote a number of books on assurance. So this chapter in, in the Puritan theology, um, it, it kind of captures the essence of these books that, that Perkins had, had written on assurance. Um, the, other, the other thing I wanted to commend to you was a chapter uh, in, in a book by Thomas Watson um, called A Body of Divinity. Uh, the chapter is, is called... Uh, the application of redemption. And within this chapter, there's two sections. Uh, one is called, uh, or the, there's several sections, but there's two of, of importance here. One is, one is called assurance, and the other is called peace. Um, probably 15 to 17 pages in total. I think these pages of Watson make up the best of Puritan literature that I've, I've ever read. Um, and, I, and I think they can be a, a real comfort to your soul. They have been to mine. Um, so anyway, I've scanned both of these, both of these um, uh, portions of the books, um, the, the, the Puritan Theology by Beakey, this chapter on Perkins, and then also these pages from Watson. If you're interested in those, um, just give me your email afterwards. I've got a, a pen and paper. You can write it down, and I'll be happy to send you those scans. Um, it's not much reading, but I think it's really, really valuable. Um, well, here we are now with Owen. Um, the year is 1649, uh, and Parliament has now ordered that he accompany the new model army on their conquest of Ireland in the fall. So why was Cromwell going to Ireland? Um, the story's probably more complicated than even I, I know. Uh, it's definitely more complicated than I'll attempt to make it sound. Um, because there's just a flurry of political and military activity that's, uh, is, frankly, it's dizzying. Um, but you'll remember, as we talked about this some last week, that, that uh, as the English Civil War was, was ending between Parliament and, and the Royalists, those who would support the king, King Charles I was put to death. Uh, monarchy was abolished. There would be a commonwealth in England where citizens would have power. Their representatives would, would have power. And Cromwell would rise up as a leading member of Parliament uh, and as general of this new model army. And Cromwell wanted to take his army to Ireland for for several reasons. Um, for one, um, Ireland had been in a state of turmoil for the last uh, for the last decade, really going back to uh, what was called the Ulster Rebellion in 1641. Um, so a, a brief history on, on that. In the late 16th and 17th century, uh, England had been sending over settlers to colonize Ireland, um, and so they would confiscate uh, Irish land. Um, they were to speak only English. Um, they were to practice only the Protestant religion. So Irish Catholics were fearful of, of a further invasion. There was hostility between Irish Catholics and English Protestants um, who had settled there. And so there was this Irish uh, Catholic revolt in 1641, and it resulted in the massacre of thousands of, of Protestants. Um, now, you can't underestimate 
how present this was in the minds of those who would head to Ireland. It was very present, um, this Ulster Rebellion. It was very present in Owen's mind. It would be something that he would reference several times in, in his writings in this period. Um, now, the Cromwellian army, they would, they would also go to subdue what threat there may have been from uh, 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 from uh, Catholic Ireland, um, excuse, excuse me. There, there, there was there was also this, you know, threat that um, Catholic Ireland uh, had had um, uh, allied themselves with royalists. Um, there was they had um, um, uh, sided with the king. Uh, and so, so England was, was concerned that, you know, now they have, they've defeated the king, that there could be a further uprising in Ireland, um, <clears throat> going forward. Um, and so, uh, a conquest to Ireland would, would more or less neutralize whatever royal, royalist resistance, um, there would have been, um, uh, against this new program in, in England. Um, and so uh, England's main goal was to extend Protestantism, uh, to, to extend uh, their power um, uh, in, in England and, and in Ireland. Um, and so some of you may know this well. Um, maybe some of you are, are vaguely familiar with this uh, conquest of Ireland under Cromwell, what would transpire there, but the vision that Cromwell offered his soldiers was um, it was severe to say the least uh, he would he would bring with him some thirty five ships over eighteen thousand troops. They would suffer their own defeats at times they would face new diseases um, you know they would lose soldiers, uh, but the army essentially completely wiped out their their enemies and in the process um, Killed thousands of innocent civilians. Um, of course, we don't always know from accounts to what extent um, that was under Cromwell's direction, but uh, we do know that there were there were uh, there was a great excess of of death. Um, you know, but it, it was very clear that for Cromwell and for the New Model Army, their their mission to Ireland. Um, it was a divinely inspired mission in their minds. Um, it was one that Cromwell thought had been attended with what he called a s- astonishing mercy from God. Um, and so it's probably no wonder why he, um, he so appreciated John Owen's voice, because John Owen was reading the events of the Civil War. Um, he was reading the, the, the events of the times uh, through a very theological lens, um, you know, one of the sermons that Owen preached to the House of Commons and Parliament leading up to the trip in Ireland in, in April of uh, 1649, he had a very apocalyptic tone. Um, he foretold the coming of uh, the prosperous estate of the kingdom of Christ. He said it was soon on its way. Um, in fact, he thought they were currently witnessing its revival um, right in his present day. Um, this is what he says, that in these... In these latter days, uh, as anti-Christian tyranny draws to its period, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will so far shake and translate 
the political heights and governments and strengths of nations as shall serve for the full bringing in of his own peaceable kingdom. So he tells us that uh, the Lord Jesus is going to bring total destruction to uh, oppressors of pure religion. Um, and now Owen was expecting that Christ's return was going to happen uh, in, conjunc- in conjunction with the toppling of, of tyrannical rule in England, which, which he believed had now happened. And, and now what was going to happen was that vengeance was going to be visited upon uh, those who meant harm to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and to the saints who would seek to worship him in, in purity and in reverence. Um, and Owen kept closely in mind uh, also uh, the ills that had been done to Protestants, to those who would practice pure religion as he saw it. Um, he, he kept close in mind those ills that had been done to, to Protestants, especially by Roman Catholics. Um, I mentioned that he, he remembered closely the, the massacre of Protestants in Ulster. He also he goes back and he cites, you know, uh, offenses that had that had taken place against the early reformers. Um, he tells us the kings of earth have given their power to Antichrist, endeavoring to the utmost to keep the kingdom of Christ out of the world. Have it not been by the blood of the saints? He asks. Uh, he mentions the the Reformation martyrs, John Huss, John Wycliffe. Uh, he says they are crying out from the ground for vengeance. Uh, he's thought too many wicked rulers, he says in, in the sermon, had washed their hands, washed their garments, and the blood of thousands of Protestants. All right, the, de- the defeat of the king. So uh, it, it represented for Owen that Christ's return was soon um, and that, that England had a part to play. Um, and, and God was prepared to, to avenge the blood of the slain, and what he said, he says it in, in very special terms to break the jaws of the terrible. Um, you know, it's fiery language. You know, it's stunning, really. It's it, terrifying. Um, you know, some people have said that it, it was right after this sermon that uh, in in April that Cromwell had asked um, Owen to accompany him as as chaplain. Uh, others would say it, it would it would be after another sermon that he preached in June. And I think, I think that's correct. He preaches this other sermon in, in June called uh, Human Power Defeated uh, to Soldiers. Uh, and he's encouraging them, again, to do the work of God uh, that, in his mind, was um, to progress this, this campaign of judgment um, against oppressors and, and also to further this expansion of the Protestant faith. Um, they're, they're fighting, he told them. It vindicated Christ. Um, and he, he prayed that God would, um, he says, God, he would pray that God would make them uh, that shall go to Ireland sensible of this truth. Right? So there's, there's this very heavy uh, Christian tone that's, you know, in giving, a, giving a purposeful narrative to, um, to those that would go for Ireland. And he says that they were to carry out the work of Christ's revenge against Babylon. Um, you know, but if, if you listen closely, though, that's not all he's saying. Um, he, he, he does have a hint of, of mercy in his tone, or at least mercy that he hopes for. Um, he, he hopes that through the conquest, 
that there might be a poor, distressed handful in Ireland that might be delivered. Um, and he'll, he'll elaborate on that some later. Um, but the overall tone is that he's giving a, a powerful message, a, a Christian message for those that would go and, um, and act out this judgment. So what do we make of all of it, right? It's not, uh, maybe not what some of us expect to hear of the Prince of the Puritans, Puritan John Owen. Um, I'll just say a few things about that. What do, what do we make of that? The first, I think the most important, is that we approach Owen, as we have to with a lot of other subjects in church history, with a level of humility. Um, you know, we can look at church history and you know, come across things that we might balk at or dismiss just because they sound so ridiculous to us, easy to condemn, yeah? Somebody said that the best of men are men at best. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. We, and, and so, I, I, yeah, I think, I think we need to kind of consider, um, you know, that we have a different vantage point than those that live before us, just as others who come after us will have a different vantage point to look at periods of our life in a different light. Um, but if Owen provided the voice of God for those that would go to Ireland, um, he would he would be himself affiliated with what even today is viewed as one of the most controversial you know military expeditions in English and especially Irish history. So does does Owen have culpability? Was was this even sinful rhetoric? Um, and. And here again, I, I think it's just wise to exercise caution. I think they're fair questions to ask. They're even good ones as, as Christians who would seek to read history with integrity. I think we should do that. Um, we also, you know, we must ask those questions with that same kind of posture of humility. Um, you know, we're not, we're not seeking to th- throw Owen out as, as we don't want to throw out, uh, Luther and, and, and Edwards and, and Whitfield for, um, what sins they may have had. Um, you know, I've, I've, I came across an article written by the church historian Carl Truman who had a really helpful line where he said that if we set the bar at sinless perfection or even at constantly consistent outward holiness, we'll have no one left upon whose wisdom we can draw. And I think that's good. Um, and so... Uh, that's kind of the mindset that I would advocate for as you read Owen, as you learn more about him, uh, seeing him as a Christian in a context of wildly political events that had a recent history of persecution uh, and within this dense culture of apocalyptic thinking um, and in a culture of political preaching. Um, well, the, the army's off. I go to... Dublin, uh, Cromwell and the army land in Dublin in, in August, and Owen would follow soon thereafter, probably arriving in October, and he would live at the Dublin Castle. This is what that um, looked like. Uh, now, it's unclear if Owen ever saw the battlefield uh, firsthand. There's no evidence to suggest that he did, um, one historian said that Dublin was, was like the wartime capital uh, for the army. Um, Catholics and royalists, they had been pushed out of the area. Uh, Cromwell 
and the army had um, taken Drogheda, then in uh, then on to Wexford Castle, then to Waterford. But Owen seems to have stayed in Dublin. Um, but if he wasn't on the battlefield himself, um, the effects of war were still all around him. Um, it, it would have been an absolutely harrowing few months for him. Um, and, it, and indeed it was, he tells us, um, some of the things that he saw. Um, and so this will be the heart of what, what we discuss here in just a bit. But as Owen gets to Dublin, he's still engaged in things back home in England. Um, he's, he's away from his theological library. Uh, but he was engaged in this debate with a guy named Richard Baxter. And Baxter would be a significant figure in, in his own right. Um, he was an English minister who had taken issue with a book that Owen had just published in 1647, which we didn't discuss last week, but I'll get into it just briefly here. Um, and that book was called Death of Death and the Death of Christ, the Latin title, which translates as the salvation of the elect by the blood of Jesus. Um, and uh, so this may be a book that some of you have read. I, I we spoke that you've read this book. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to commend the, the intro as well. That's right. Um, I mean, maybe some of you have heard of Death of Death. Uh, if you haven't, that's fine too. Um, but it, it's a significant book um, uh, on the atonement of Christ and, in fact, on the gospel itself. Um, so I, I'll just tell you briefly about this book. Um, Owen's objective was to show that God saves people um, not by offering to the world a possible savior, uh, but one who actually saves. Those are the terms that, that Owen would uh, lay out. Um, what did Christ achieve on the cross? That's, that's, that's really the central question of his book. And Owen answers that his death on the cross had actually purchased not merely the opportunity for man to be saved, but the actual um, salvation um, of, of the elect, of those for whom it was intended. Uh, in the book here, it's, it's also it's a beautiful display of the Trinitarian work of redemption. Um, Owen will show us how in harmony the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they, they work together to accomplish uh, redemption. Um, Owen will say that you know, those who the, the Father has elected in eternity, the Son has died for, and the Spirit calls um, effectually. Um, and so Owen sees in the scriptures that, that Christ's work is effective. Um, so the book ha- it has two sections that argue that Christ's death, it actually saves people. And what I mean by that is um, uh, it does all the work. It's not, it's not, a, it's not upon man to, a, to avail himself of the benefits of the privileges of Christ's death. Um, uh, but in harmony with the other persons of the Trinity, Christ's death, it pays the penalties, uh, uh, it pays the penalty, rather, for the sins of those whom the Father had given him, uh, such that um, all for whom Christ died, they, they, they all come to him in faith, uh, being born again of, of the Spirit. 
Um, now what remains in the book is, is 16 arguments. Owen was very thorough um, against an alternative hypothesis, and that, that is um, the position of universal redemption. Uh, to, that, to that position, Owen would say, on the one hand, the Bible teaches that none for whom Christ died would perish. Um, and second, that if the death of Christ was universal, then either all must be saved or God had failed to do something that he set out to do. Um, now, in, in the summary I'm giving here, um, I'm really pulling from, from J.I. Packer, who wrote the introduction, who's just mentioned. Um, he's, he's written this marvelous essay um, to, to the more recent printing of Owen's book. Um, and so maybe you won't read Death of Death, uh, but, if you, but if you don't, just seek out this, this essay by Packer. Um, it's a really helpful outline of Owen's thinking on redemption. Um, but it's actually a classic in its own right. Um, yeah, so if, 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 you're, if you're interested in that, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a really uh, readable entry into the doctrine of the atonement. Um, Packer has a very lucid style. Um, it's very unassuming, very patient with his reader, um, which, which I've appreciated. My wife and, and a friend actually set out to read Death of Death not too many years ago, and they worked part of the way through it. I don't know how far they got, but they, but they read the introduction and were, and were really edified by it, and, and it, and it helped, helped their understanding a lot of, of some of Owen's thinking, but also of, um, of, of the scriptures. And so... Um, I brought a, a little book here. That essay is in this book um, that Packer wrote. This book is called um, In My Place uh, Condemned He Stood. It's out with Crossway. And it has like a number of essays by, by J.A. Packer, Mark Dever. Um, and uh, anyway, this introduction to Owen is, is, is one of the sections in this book. So I would commend that to you. Um, in, in My Place Condemned He Stood is, is what it's called. Um, now, the Banner of Truth, uh, it's a, a, a publisher of, of Puritan works. They had published Death of Death, and really, after that publication, it's kind of been assumed that this Death of Death is Owen on the Atonement. Um, but Owen would actually write a good bit more on the Atonement after Death of Death. Um, I think Death of Death is probably his, his best work uh, on it. Um, I imagine he did, too. Uh, he actually says in the book that um, he didn't think anyone would be able to respond to it. Uh, and and pa- J.I. Packer also also tells us that you know if anyone would hold an alternative view on redemption, they must first refute Owen. And to his knowledge, no one had done that yet. <laughs> so um, it's a good it's a good book to grapple with and 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 to think about. But uh, anyway, Owen would write other things on redemption. Um, uh, one later work would he would write uh, a couple of years later was called a dissertation on divine justice, um, and he says that the atonement of Christ uh, was necessary, uh, meaning that God couldn't forgive sins in any other way. Um, whereas in Death of Death, he would mention that God could, if He had willed it, to be another way. Um, the difference is, is 
whether or not justice is a natural attribute of the divine nature. Um, if, if justice is, is not a natural attribute of the divine nature, then justice must be an act of the divine will, in which case God uh, would be free to punish sin or not to punish sin. If justice is a natural attribute of God, then God, being consistent within himself, must punish sin. Um, And so these are things that Owen would think through over the years. Um, And so there would be some change there um, as, as, frankly, new new heresies would, would crop up, new arguments would be made, and Owen would have to think through his own arguments and be forced to go back to the scriptures and, and consider his own, his own logic again. Um, and so Owen's, Owen would write more on atonement, um, and he would change on some things, but his stance on the particular nature of redemption was, was static. Um, he would remain the same there. Um, and despite his thinking that nobody would be able to respond to it, there's always one, right? And that one for Owen was Richard Baxter. And Baxter had picked up on Death of Death at the end of his book called Aphorisms on Justification, which he published in 1649. Um, And he criticized Owen of advocating for a position that Owen had unequivocally denounced. Uh, He he had far removed himself um, from this position that, that Baxter accused him of. He had denounced it as heresy, and that position was uh, one of uh, advocating for eternal justification. Um, that's, the, that's the unbiblical view that if you were elected un- that if you were elected unto salvation from eternity, um, then you had no no need in the present to confess sin. Um, you had no need for faithful living. You were justified in eternity. Uh, your, your sins were, were pardoned in eternity past. Owen, Owen was dumbfounded by this. Um, and it, it was something that he adamantly rejected, as would many other Puritans, especially. Uh, there's one, uh, John Flavel, Flavel um, wrote a book that um, was, was very good on, on rejecting this, this unbiblical view of eternal justification. Uh, but Owen was offended by the attack by Baxter. Um, he thought it made no sense, um, thought it was completely unwarranted. Um, it wasn't upon people to speculate about the intention of, of God in election. It certainly wasn't upon the preacher um, of God's word to know who was elect, who's not. That wasn't something that uh, was, was upon man to, to think about. But, but you preach Christ. Uh, you preach his death and resurrection. Owen would say, you preach Christ whose who's sacrifice was sufficient for all. That's how he's able, to, he's able to give that free offer of the gospel. It's sufficient for all and effectual to those who would believe. Um, and moreover, against this view of a, a eternal justification, Owen, Owen would say that justification happens in, it, it happens in real time, in real space, uh, that the sinner becomes justified. They're not justified in eternity. Um, I think that's where Owen's so helpful when he describes the work of redemption in Trinitarian terms. 
um, the Father elects an eternity past. The Son purchase, purchases uh, their salvation on the cross, and the Spirit applies those benefits to them, you know, breathing uh, life uh, into them so that they're actually transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Uh, they're brought to life in, in real time and space uh, as they, re- they respond in faith to the gospel. Well, it's the longest possible way that I can get to the point, which is to say that from the Dublin Castle, Owen is responding to Baxter. Um, hopefully that's helpful, though, just to get some context about what Owen's engaged with and get some view into some of his theology on, a, on an important topic. Um, but Owen, Owen has to respond. He, he chooses to respond uh, to Baxter, and, and the, book, uh, the book is called Of the Death of Christ. Uh, it's really just an expansion of this earlier work, and, and, and it's Owen kind of you know, answering some of those claims that we just talked about. Um, but at the end of the book, Owen complains that he's been separated from his library while living in Dublin, and it's actually quite funny to, to consider uh, him saying that um, because of how well put together the book is, um, that he, he, would, he would add that on the end. Uh, because the book, the book is it's very clear, his learning and what he's written. Um, but Owen tended to do that type of thing, especially later on in life, uh, where he would, he would make a comment about whatever physical ailment or being away from his life, whatever restricted him from in, in, in his preparation uh, for a response to whatever that adversary was. And it, it's kind of, I usually get a chuckle out of it just because, you know, it's hard to tell if he's being sincere uh, when he's saying those things or if he's trying to make his work maybe sound more impressive. Um, who knows? But um, in this case, he, he really did seem to have a good excuse for whatever the deficiencies in the book may have been because he was off at war. Uh, but right there at the end of, uh, of the death of Christ, Owen gives us some critical insight uh, into his experience in Dublin. And that's where we'll remain for the rest of our time. Uh, what we know of, of Owen in the short period of, of just four months or so, um, I think it's some of the most underappreciated material uh, in Owen's life. Uh, and... I, th- I think it's really worth focusing on. Uh, it's you know it's just it's just a brief time, uh, but it is really important I think. And so if you were to gather together all of the data uh, we know about his stay in Dublin, reflect on it as a Christian. Um, I, I, I've kind of categorized some of that into maybe five lessons, five quick lessons about. Um, that, that, that shed light on Owen, um, and, uh, but, but five lessons that, that we could take away as, as believers reflecting on his time there. Um, now the first is, is this, that Christians must have a, a passionate concern for the lost. Um, this is one thing that Owen teaches us while he's in Dublin. Remember, he had, he had encouraged the, the subjugation of Ireland by the New Model Army leading up to his departure. Um, 
I mentioned that he did have the, the Ulster Rebellion, the massacre of, of thousands of Protestants in his mind. Uh, and he did believe that England was a chosen nation by God whose mandate it was to administer justice uh, to the wicked. And it, he, he provided that narrative for those who would go to Ireland. Um, that, that was a narrative of, of judgment. We're bringing the judgment of God. But his concern was, was more than, than justice. Um, and it was about more than, than pleasing the interests of those in England. It was about more than pleasing the interests of Cromwell, um, in, in whom he had found favor. Um, listen to what he says. He, he exhorts the English uh, officials to say not in the first place that this or that suits England, but look to what suits the interest of Christ. And assure yourselves that the true interest of any nation is wrapped up therein. For Owen, uh, what we find is this interest involved, it involved more than revenge against the murder and treachery of the Irish Catholics. It also meant extending a merciful hand, uh, the merciful hand of Christ, extending the gospel to the Irish. Uh, he tells us on December 20th, 1649, uh, only a few months into his stay, that he had been employed with constant preaching to a numerous multitude of as thirsty a people after the gospel as he had ever seen. Remember the scene at Kagashaw where, where there's, there's a lot of indifference, there's spiritual apathy? So this was a stark contrast for him. He's taken back by this real desire that people have thirsting for the gospel. And he goes on and tells us about some of what he sees there. He recounts the poor, parentless children that lie begging, starving, rotting in the streets and find no relief. You know, it, it, like I said, it, it was unlikely that he was on the battlefield. Um, but these sights apparently had some effect on him. You know, he was seeing the effects of war um, in Dublin. And when he were returned to Parliament the following year, he recalls to them the tears and cries of the, habit- of the inhabitants of Dublin. He said, they're, they're ever in my view. Um, and so in an, in an impassioned plea to Parliament, uh, he asks uh, something that really, really hits deep. This is what he says uh, in his address. How is it that Jesus Christ is in Ireland only as a lion staining all his garments with the blood of his enemies and none to hold him out as a lamb sprinkled with his own blood for his friends. He goes on, he says, For my part, I see no farther into the mystery of these things but that I could hardly rejoice that innocent blood being expiated the Irish might enjoy Ireland so long as the moon endures so that Jesus Christ might possess the Irish. That's what words, right? Gives me chills. Owen's appeal to his countrymen, it reflected, um, it reflected anguish of a Christian who had been moved to compassion um, by those desperate cries that, that he heard. Um, from what he called the gospelists. 
Um, the second thing that we learn from Owen in Ireland is, um, is this, that gospel preaching must be pure. Um, so Owen was not the only English minister who traveled to Ireland to preach. In fact, during the, during the years of English engagement in Ireland, while uh, many English ministers remained home to care, their, care for their flocks, as, as probably Owen wished he had been able to do, um, there were scores of, of English radicals, uh, those holding extra-biblical uh, beliefs, uh, who were realizing that they could have a new audience uh, to whom they might disseminate their, their views. Um, Owen thought that's exactly what was happening. Um, he thought that many uh, heretics were, were, were getting banned from preaching in England, and so they were moving out to Ireland um, amidst, the, amidst the chaos of, of war to, to preach their heretical views there. So Owen does something about it. He, he urges Parliament to send more preachers of the gospel uh, to Ireland, and he discloses his, this fear to him that he has uh, about the situation at hand. And he says that they're seducers and blasphemers. Uh, they will not be wanting to sow their tares, which those fallowed fields will receive if there be none to cast the seed of the word. Um, some false teachers, he claimed, they, they had already come to Ireland. Um, he says, without call, without employment, to vaunt themselves to be God. Uh, and, and they were doing so in the open streets. He talks about their detestable pride, atheism, and folly. Um, you know, false, false teachers were for Owen, and, and false teachers are dangerous, right? Um, and they were making their way through what Owen called almost expiring Ireland. Um, and so the Irish needed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and he tells us that there was a poor and distressed handful of souls thirsting for the word of God. And that word and that, that gospel, it had no power if it were polluted with bad teaching. And therefore, Owen um, thought what was needed was to counteract that trend um, by sending more faithful, able ministers to preach uh, the pure, the, the true gospel. The third thing um, that we learn from Owen is that Christians must prioritize prayer. Uh, Owen did not think that the gospel should go alone to Ireland. Uh, he thought it should be accompanied by the prayers of Christians who were committed, committed to seeing uh, Christ's purposes fulfilled, not just purposes of judgment, as we said, but of salvation, um, of God's purposes of of, of saving, um, saving the Irish Christians needed to pray if that was going to happen. Um, now Owen had, had viewed parliamentary victories during the civil war, uh, as evidences of God's mercy toward England and evidence of his desire to bless them as a nation. Right. Uh, but that blessing was conditional. Um, what was the condition? The condition was, uh, that England was to do its part. Uh, they were to uh, give glory to God by steadfastness in believing, uh, committing all their ways to him, is what he tells us. Uh, the strength of both England's political 
uh, and evangelistic success in, in Owen's mind um, was not in the armies that it could raise against men, uh, but it was in the armies of prayers and tears that it poured out to God. Isn't that good? Uh, and so when, when Owen goes back home in February the next year, he addresses Parliament and he rebukes English churches and he asks them, of how many congregations in this nation may the prayers, tears, supplications for carrying on the work of God in Ireland be written with the lines of emptiness? He was angry that people weren't praying. People needed to pray if they were going to save the Irish. Um, And he continued, What a silence it has been in the heaven of many churches this last half hour. Um, and so Owen, Owen certainly believed that God was sovereign over, over the affairs in Ireland, but he also believed that England had a responsibility uh, to see God's plans through. And he thought that any, any action that they would take in Ireland would frankly be, it would be moot without, without petition to the Lord. The fourth lesson that Owen gives us here in Ireland is, is that knowledge is a requisite for belief. Um, to believe in God, you have to know about God. Um, when Owen was in Ireland, he, he had more responsibilities than just being a chaplain. Um, he also spent time investigating uh, the affairs of Trinity College Dublin, um, which was home to the only university library in Ireland. Uh, one person had said it was like the National uh, Seminary of the Irish clergy. And Owen wanted to make sure that the library was equipped uh, with the resources it needed to, to train pastors. Um, well, Owen, Owen was really disappointed with what, what he found. And, and what he found was not much. Uh, the, the, uh, the school was in poor shape. Um, remember, he had, he had complained to Baxter about not having his access to his own library. And in fact, the, the, the university library, it was in terrible shape. So he wondered how were how ministers, including including himself, how are they to faithfully read and write and preach without relevant, accessible theological materials? Um, and so what does he do? He calls to Parliament to improve the situation. Uh, and a month later, on March 8, 1650, Parliament passed an act for the better advancement of the gospel and learning in Ireland. And what this did was it, it endowed Trinity College. Um, it appointed uh, 15 trustees, among whom Owen was one. Um, and uh, they permitted, uh, the parliament permitted also the f- further investigation into establishing a new college, a second free school in Dublin. Um, and so the thing here is that, uh, that Owen believed, like, if, if, if Ireland were to be taken for Christ, um, it's, it's, premier university would need to undergo restoration. Um, ministers, they needed to have the ability to become educated um, in the knowledge of Christ before they could expect their nation to believe in him. Um, Parliament, it seems, agreed. Uh, well, the final point that we can make from Owen in Ireland is, is this, that, uh, that Christian duty often requires sacrifice. Um, you know, Parliament's efforts in, in 1650 to fix the things Owen had brought to them, um, uh, it, to, to heed the advice he had given them, um, 
following his experience in Dublin, it seemed to, to justify some of the sacrifices that he was making um, by, by going to Ireland, by joining the new, the new model army. Um, but you'll, you, you'll remember that Owen had been a pastor to this struggling congregation, uh, that neither he nor they wanted him to leave. Um, you'll remember that uh, this was his first time away from England, um, traveling away from his wife, uh, who was compensated uh, by the government during his trip, but who was now without her husband and without any remaining children. Um, and she was pregnant. Um, and Owen would be away for those months of her pregnancy, and then uh, he would miss the birth of his daughter. Uh, and so there was more. Owen was in Ireland, and he, he would complain about poor health, um, what he called more than ordinary weaknesses and infirmities. And he had just begun to establish himself as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a prominent voice on the, on the national scene um, for the Puritan cause. Um, and, and so an uncertain and, and, and dangerous uh, voyage to Ireland uh, away from the public eye probably hadn't been on his, on his career agenda. But uh, Owen, Owen sacrificed, and he made the most of what was required of him. Um, he gained formative experience that, in a way, changed the way he thought about Ireland. Uh, and the way he hoped his country might might think about Ireland too, um, and so this is this is just a brief snapshot in Owen's life, um, especially given how how decorated, how how nuanced it would it would become. Um, but I think it does it does provide a bit of color uh, to to his Christian zeal. That zeal would be present with him you know, for the for the rest of his life. Well. Uh, that's it on on Owen on Ireland, um, and we'll, we'll plan to, to uncover more of, of that Christian zeal that was with Owen um, for the rest of his life. But next week we'll, we'll look at Owen in the 1650s while he's vice chancellor of Oxford University. Um, does anyone have any questions about this this brief little moment in Owen's life? Yeah, Tom. So I'm curious. Uh, thanks for that, Zach. Um, I'm curious if you, you mentioned Owen changing his mind sometimes. Uh, you also mentioned what I took that he didn't just change his mind, but changed like his position on, for instance, the Irish war. Um, does he ever openly come out and say that, like, "Hey, look, I was wrong. Uh, I repent"? Or does he ever? Or does he just kind of? You know, because we all, this is all our temptation, you know. It's easy to forget our mistakes and just move on. But I'm curious how he handles that. Yeah. um, Owen does change his mind on a lot of things um, throughout his life. And he's, he's very reluctant to admit when he does. Sometimes he would be... He would seem a lot easier to read if he would come out and say, acknowledge that he was changing his mind, so that you're not reading him and and thinking you're missing something. Um, but but yeah, in this case specifically, Owen doesn't seem to acknowledge that he's he's held some view that he's he's now rejecting. But um, 
But I think it does it does still kind of come through that he's aware of it at least. I I think the I think the experience did a number on him. Um, the way he describes the Irish in those terms, and really the the bold the bold uh, remarks he makes back to his own government um, are, are pretty pretty impressive. I I think. Uh, you know, he's he's probably assuming people are picking up on that, that this experience had had you know changed his mind on some things, but um, but no, he doesn't he doesn't acknowledge that. Um, he, he'll he'll change his views later on after uh, the restoration when uh, Charles II is come back to the throne, and um, he'll speak about. Uh, Charles II's father, Charles I, uh, who was executed and who Owen commemorated his execution the day after. Um, but he'll speak later about the king's glorious memory. Um, and you're, you know, you're just kind of baffled. But, but it, it, was, it was difficult to be John Owen in that time. You know, he was trying to stay alive. Uh, but no, he didn't. He didn't say, acknowledge it here in this case. Yeah. Do you think pre-mill theology had anything to do with his uh, <clears throat> his thought and actions? I mean, a lot of these guys, these Puritans, were pre-mill, and they everybody was the Antichrist, and the world's going to end, and Jesus is coming, and uh, it just seems like even since. Uh, to get off the subject a little bit, constant ever since Christians, ever since Constantine to now, every time Christians have been in charge of anything, it's ended in death. And and uh, I can't think of one Christian country or government where everything ended gloriously. <laughs> it's just been a mess, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it is a good reminder to to read to read Owen and and you know be reminded that um, you know Christian nationalism, if you call it that, it's not exclusive to America. Yeah. Um, it's not exclusive to to any country. But Owen did hold more of a, a post millennial view that by by Christianizing the the land that that. Um, that would bring about Christ's yeah. return, and so that that was that was common. Uh, Owen was consistent with others who were preaching to Parliament and who were um, big names at that time. Um, the question but, I have yeah. is: Did that work out? Oh, definitely. It, it it didn't work out. It didn't. It didn't work out. Work out anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you try to Christianize a country, it ain't gonna work. Yeah. Well, uh, Owen and his peers definitely experienced that. Um, that's uh, that's uh, uh, you heard the, the term uh, describing the the Puritans, um, the experience of defeat, right? Um, and that was that was the story of Puritans. Um, they 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 were hopeful for this period in the fifties that we'll talk talk about next week, but that came crashing down, um, and. Uh, they were once again marginalized and, and oppressed, and a lot of those views about uh, the return of Christ—you know, some some bold claims that were being made 
when things were looking good and that you know they were going to have more and more religious freedom they hoped um, some of those millennial views um, they they started to backpedal a little bit at least Owen did where he would he would be kind of critical of people who would do things like set dates for Christ's return or 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 and Owen would definitely be less um, less forward in some of his predictions and um, and and so yeah so uh, uh, at least in this period Owen was very optimistic and maybe a little more bold in his claims about what could be accomplished um, for the Christian religion and for for England that would change yeah uh, going to Owen's death of death yeah do you know what his main scriptural anchoring arguments was um, is it because usually when I hear it it's like the logic of redemption you know like God cannot twice demand punishments uh, the Lord accomplishes what he sets out to achieve it is the scriptural anchor you know like it is finished or john 6 all the father has given given to me will come to me it's the sense of like the, his christ accomplished accomplished what he set out to achieve to 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 save all the father has given to me like the trinitarian argument that owen mm-hmm. mentions do, do you know like what's his main scriptural anchor that he will go to to defend uh limited atonement yeah, that's a good question. I I, I don't know that there there is this there's a specific text. The one you mentioned, John six six forty four, that that I think it's six forty that that all would would come to him. Um, that that's a big one that Owen Owen does play on. But um, yeah, I would, I would have to go back and, and visit visit it more closely. Um, I think Owen. It, it, he is definitely um, he's definitely kind of anchoring his argument on on uh, the covenant of redemption um, that that the father um, and the son had uh, agreed upon um, that that the father would uh, give to the son um, and and elect the son would um, purchase their salvation and then the spirit would effectually call them such that they never slip away and they you know they they would in fact be saved um yeah i, I don't know i i there, maybe there is a, a particular text that that he keeps coming back to john six uh features a lot i know but um i don't really know <laughs> yeah Again, um, you know, Christian positions on violence, are, you know, can be along a spectrum. So you can have folks that are just total pacifists, like Christians can't even be police officers, kind of thing. And I'm just, and then on the, you know, extreme end, people who are thinking that uh, political power can be used to subjugate folks for Christ and stuff. And I was just wondering where John Owen did he articulate a position on that? He clearly was deeply grieved at the innocent folks that suffered in mm-hmm. in Ireland uh, but did he ever come out and articulate like his full view on, on like Augustine does that he try, tries to do it but does he ever do that and do you know what it, what, what it might be yeah well there's a lot to say there um, and maybe this will kind of just show you just what a complicated person Owen was 
but he he uh, he's in a way he he thinks it's he thinks the war is justified, um, and, and so he's in one sense he he he's he's still thinking it's justified even when he's going back to to Parliament. Um, but then, yeah, but then he's moved to compassion when he sees some of the effects of it. Uh, so where, where does Owen stand on it? Later in his life, um, he would be preaching at a house church, and he was under government surveillance, and uh, military or, or, or government officials would co- come into his house church in the middle of a, of a service, and... Uh, break it apart, and they found six or seven cases of pistols. Uh, what on earth was Owen doing with six or seven cases of guns and ammunition? Um, but then, ar- around the same time, in the, in the 60s, Owen would look back on the past, and some of his, uh, some of his opponents who he was riding against would accuse him of being that 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 radical revolutionary under the Cromwellian years, who you you couldn't trust, um, and uh, they remembered some of the the language that he would use, inspiring, uh, you know, the military. Uh, but then Owen goes back and he's and he's like, um, I've never advocated for the use of guns or weapons or crusades. And he puts all of that on, you know, this this foreign enemy, Rome, Roman Catholics, who would do that. And so he he's, you know, maybe he really thinks that, you know, maybe he's. So the guns were picked up on. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, it's it's complicated, right? Because on one on one end, he's he has, he's he's provided this language that inspired. You know the military, but then he's saying that he's never been for it. He's he's compassionate to Parliament, but then he has guns himself. Yeah. I I don't know, and and maybe maybe he changes. You know, maybe at times he's. Yeah. I think that's probably it. Um, Another question. Owen was. Owen wore a lot of hats. He was a pastor. He was a chaplain in, in Cromwell's army. Did Owen articulate a, a, a succinct vision of what the Christian mission was in the world? So, you know, like I think normally we would go to the Great Commission that we're called to make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Spirit to obey. But did he did he understand that the Christian was to have a a bigger role to play in world affairs? Like, what, did he understand the Christian had to, you know, he, he blessed England army, English army to go and, and conquer the, the Irish? Because I know that that's a, that's a common, I, I've read of other missionaries who were glad that a foreign armies invaded corrupt countries, like Adoniram Judson will, he, he thanked that the, the, Brit, the British would conquer Burma because that would open up uh, missionaries to be able to preach the gospel to the Burmese. Um, did, did, he have a, uh, did he have a succinct vision of what the Christian mission was in the, in the world? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Uh, Owen definitely thought that that, um, 
that it was it was Christians' responsibility to see to it that um, that uh, that pure pure religion could exist even in countries out outside of outside of of England. Um, he thought it was Christians and his government's duty to um, you know to address. Um, you know, issues of, of tyranny or oppression um, to visit justice on those places. He thought that was, like, uh, collectively, that, that was the responsibility of, of, um, of a nation of Christians. Um, and he, again, that's especially, you know, in this period where he's, he's thinking that, um, you know, that... Christ is going to return through um, Christianizing these different places. Um, on a on an individual level, I guess, too, like how how is Owen imagining like the Christian mission? Um, ultimately, like even even those those things going to other countries and you know being a hand of justice to those who were you know afflicting um, afflicting people. Uh, Owens, ultimately, he's hoping that people would experience God, um, that 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 God that that people would know God. Um, uh, you know, we'll we'll get into like his his book Communion with God, and uh, and what some of what he talks about there in the fifties, but um, but yeah. Yeah, I've got this book that I've read of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. Yeah. And uh, there's one prayer in there, and the title is, Yet I Sin. And it just always hits me because God, Jesus, the whole, the, the ontological trinity has done so much for me, and yet I sin. And the Puritans for me have always addressed the day-to-day Christian life and all its ups and downs. But after 27 years of reading the Puritans, and uh, if there was a congregation of Puritans, and if, if it was between a cheeseburger and a grilled cheese, the congregation would split in two. <laughs> I've just found that, you know, precisionism brings schism also. And that was a fault of the Puritans, you know, where, where you get so precise, where there is no adiaphora, there is no room for having latitude. Uh, uh, a lot of these guys I found were sometimes, they were merciless, just like I am, mm. you know, sometimes. Uh, and we have to forgive them, you know. Uh, they did the best. The best of men are men at best. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, and, and the Puritans are really interesting there because it would be, you know, it would be that intensity on precision that would play a part in their downfall as they're thinking through what, what would be the, the new religious program for, for England. And there was disagreement that ultimately they were, there was disunity. Um, but also the Puritans, um, you know, they 
a lot of them were, were, were staunch advocates for toleration mm. um, and um, you know for bearing with with others who would have uh, different you know theological persuasions though like at least in Owen's case that wouldn't be a total toleration like there would still be groups that he thought you know were dangerous to the to the country and, but um, like the Baptists just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, Owen was Owen was Owen was a friend of the Baptists. Uh, he was, but yeah, not everyone thought that the bad. If Owen was a radical, the Baptists were much more radical. Uh, but um, yeah, Owen was a friend of, friend of the Baptists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's funny. Questions. Great. Well, thank you all. And um, next week we'll talk about Owen at the height of his career um, as vice chancellor of Oxford. So, thank you, thanks. Thank you.